0: Welcome to the third episode of Arbitration Insider, the arbitration podcast series of Freshfields and NIAC. I am Rekha Rundachari, Executive Director of NIAC.
1: And I'm Olivier André, Client Relationship Advisor in the Freshfields International Arbitration Group in New York. Rekha, always a pleasure to moderate this program with you. Before we jump into our episode, I think, Rekha, you have a special guest.
0: Thank you, Olivier. In episode one, we discussed arbitration and climate change and interviewed Lucy Greenwood, the founder of the Campaign for Greener Arbitrations, an initiative to reduce the carbon footprint of the international arbitration community. This year, GAR presented the first award for sustainable behavior in collaboration with the campaign at the GAR Awards ceremony on July 1. Our special guest, Noyana Marigo, heads international arbitration in the Americas at Freshfields. Freshfields won the inaugural Green Award. Noyana, welcome. It is a pleasure to have you with us today. And allow me to congratulate you personally as the 2021 recipient of the Minority Corporate Council Association's Rainmakers Award. On the Freshfields Award for Sustainable Development, congratulations on the win. I understand Freshfields has an International Arbitration Green Task Force. Can you please tell us a bit more about this and the firm's environmental and winning strategy?
2: Thank you, Regan. Thank you for inviting me to this podcast and for your warm welcome. Let me tell you first that we are absolutely honored to have received this award. It's very close to our hearts. And as you know, Freshfields was nominated to the award because of two of our green initiatives. One was a five-year global environmental strategy, and the other one was our green task force. So let me start, if that's okay with you first, with the five-year global environmental strategy. This plan actually builds up on the environmental initiatives that our firm has already undertaken over the last 10 years, because actually green initiatives are not new for us. What is new this time is that we have adopted very ambitious targets and concrete steps to help us get there. And some of these include, for example, further reducing paper usage by 40% by 2025, phasing out single-use plastics in all of our offices by the end of 2021, further reducing carbon from business travel by 30% by 2025. This will be easier to do with COVID now. (laughs) And also, we have decided to power all of our offices with 100% renewable electricity by 2030. So, I'm sure you, you will agree with me that these are very ambitious targets, and we are proud of having adopted them. But as I mentioned, the firm commitment to environment is not new. And if you would allow me, there is one special initiative that we have been working on since 2015 to basically reduce carbon emissions. And this is the participation in an award-winning carbon offsetting program that is called Reforestation in East Africa Programme, or REAP. And this program focuses on reforestation and supports the livelihoods of 9,000 farmers in Kenya and Uganda. And importantly, this program also has the additional and important goal of enhancing gender equality by actually providing leadership roles to women in this community. So we're very proud of our participation in this program, which closely aligns with many of our most important values at Freshfields. And let me now move to the second initiative, which is the Green Task Force. And this was in line with our environmental strategy. We decided to be one of the first firms to sign the Green Pledge of the Campaign for Greener Arbitrations earlier this year. So shortly after signing the pledge, we decided that if we wanted to really get to our goals and comply with the principles of the Pledge, we had to establish a global task force. And this task force is today made up of representatives from our international arbitration team all around the world and looks into concrete ways for implementing the principles of the Pledge. For example, by using more and better technology and by closely working with our clients towards establishing greener and cost-efficient arbitrations. As you know, and with this I will finish, Freshfields has played also a significant role in the development of the equal representation in arbitration, which is called the ERA pledge over the past few years. And the Green pledge and our task force are just further examples of our team's commitments to thought leadership initiatives in these new and emerging areas of international arbitration. So I'm sure there will be many more to come.
0: Many thanks, Noyana. It was a pleasure to have you with us today.
2: You're welcome.
1: In today's episode of Arbitration Insider, we have the pleasure of welcoming Deborah Inix-Ross, John Fellows, Dana McGrath, and Beno Kimmelman all are seasoned arbitration practitioners, well known in the New York international arbitration community and beyond, who have recently started a new chapter in their career. We thought it would be good to check in with them to see how they're doing and at the same time ask them for their views on how to develop a successful career in international arbitration.
0: I'm now sitting down with John Fellas principal at Fellas Arbitration and past partner and co-chair of the International Arbitration Group at Hughes, Hubbard, and Reed in New York. Welcome, John. You've recently become an independent arbitrator. Why this move? What are your plans?
3: Thank you, Rekha. Delighted to be here. Thank you for having me. There isn't particularly one reason for the move, and it's something I have been thinking about for a while. One reason for it is uh, perhaps in the last five years before leaving Hughes Hubbard, uh, and I left Hughes Hubbard at the end of December of 2020, more and more of my work was arbitrator work. I was getting approached for more and more work uh, serving as an arbitrator, and it, it's work that I happen to enjoy. and. As everyone knows, there's a disadvantage with being at a big firm if you want to do that work. So that sort of got me into thinking about setting up on my own. And of course, I, you know, uh, there are pioneers in in this that uh, did this well before I did, such as uh, Gene Kalisky and Rob Smith and and Eric Schwartz and. I thought, well, you know, maybe I could be one of the lucky ones who was able to leave a firm and do this. And I think another reason was I'd been at Hughes Hubbard my entire career for 32 years. And, you know, I could quite happily stay until the firm's retirement age of 70 and and beyond, as many partners stick around. But I really thought, you know, this is a chance to, in a sense, have a second chapter and I'm in my late 50s and do something different. <laughs> Not completely different, but something different to to being at a law firm. And so I think it was a combination of those two things that led me to set up on my own. And in in terms of plans, I'm really just focused on doing arbitrator work, and uh, the one other thing I did was to take up a teaching position at uh, NYU School of Law, where I'm uh, teaching international commercial arbitration, which I did once uh, in the spring semester of of this year, of 2021, and uh, thoroughly enjoyed, and going to be resuming again in the fall.
0: John, you've had a very successful career in international arbitration so far. Can you tell us how you got into the
3: field? You know the biggest change is that back when I started practicing, there really wasn't a distinctive field of international arbitration in the United States market. Uh, I don't want to overstate this. I think certain firms, you know, did have people who, who did some of it more than others, but. In general, firms had their litigation departments and international arbitrations and arbitrations in general tended to get handled that way. The biggest change I've seen is that more and more firms are self-consciously having international arbitration departments. More and more law schools are offering courses in international arbitration, something that I suspect barely... Uh, existed when when I was in law school in the United States in the uh, early 80s and that to me is the biggest change and because of that growth I think more and more uh, young lawyers are focusing it on international arbitration as a field I, like I think many people my age I sort of got into it by accident you know I I did I started out as a generalist litigator did my first international arbitration and thoroughly enjoyed it. I don't think you can get into it by accident anymore. I think, you know, you have to self-consciously pursue the field. And we've seen a proliferation of courses and LLMs in the field of international arbitration, which, which young lawyers are following.
0: Last but not least, any tips that you'd like to share with young practitioners who are trying to break into international arbitration today?
3: Yes. I think, you know, to some degree, a lot of people are attracted to international arbitration uh, because of the possibility it gives you to serve as an arbitrator. You know, to all young lawyers, I say this, look, you don't get to sit as an arbitrator until you have a little bit of gray hair, or at least the possibility of some gray hair, especially in the US market. I, I think in Europe, p- people tend to sit as arbitrators younger than they do in the United States, but you need to have a long game. You don't join a law firm or you don't start practicing in the field and then suddenly the next day you're sitting as an international arbitrator. And so I I think you need to focus on building a personal reputation, which is a lot of work, but you know, when people pick arbitrators, they pick the person. Now, of course, being at a good law firm will help you get the exposure you need and the experience you need uh, because, you know, unless you've done some work as as an advocate in international arbitration and preparing a case, you really won't get to know the field. But ultimately, what you need to do is build a personal reputation, and you do that by writing articles and, and going to conferences and getting to know other people in the field. Someone once said... 90% of life is showing up. And I I think in international arbitration, you need to show up. There are people you will meet as a young lawyer, um, whether it's on an LLM course or uh, in law school or um, some professional bar committee, that you will know 20, 30 years later. I mean, there are people, you know, I... Didn't start out in the field because I think people of my generation didn't start out in the field of international arbitration, or at least in the U.S., or very few of them did. But you know, the people I started getting to know as I started to do this work and get go to the conferences um, and uh, uh, and so on are people I still know today. It, it's ultimately a small world. And you need to get in that world and you need to just stick with it and stay in that world because eventually you do that long enough. And, you know, people say international arbitration is a club, but you show up enough, you're part of the club. And, and it really is a lot of it is just showing up and meeting people and making people know that you know what you're talking about. And so speaking at conferences and writing articles is a good way to do it.
1: Dana McGrath, welcome to Arbitration Insider. It is a pleasure to speak with you today. You have more than two decades of international arbitration experience as practitioner at Sullivan & Cromwell, O'Melveny & Myers, Allen and & Avery, and as a partner at Sidley in New York. And more recently, you were an investment manager and in-house legal counsel at Omni Bridgeway. You are also known for being a leader in the international arbitration community You are the current president of Arbitral Women. You are a member of the Council of the AAA ICDR, a former chair of the New York City Bar Arbitration Committee, and former chair of YDR CPR's Young Lawyers Group, just to name a few. Dana, you've very recently become an independent arbitrator with the launch of McGrath Arbitration in August 2021. Why did you choose to take this recent step in your international arbitration career, and why now?
4: Well, I chose to do this because I've had several decades of experience in the international arbitration field. And I feel that over the years, I've gained extensive experience in this area, and it's the right time for me to launch my full-time independent arbitrator practice. It's earlier than some choose to do it. And I find that an exciting aspect of choosing to do it now. That said, I will continue to wear the many other hats that many people know me to wear, including as president of Arbitral Women and on the steering committees of the Arbitration Pledge and Racial Equality for Arbitration Lawyers, because I believe deeply in advocating for diversity in arbitration. So I will continue to have a lot of different connections with the international arbitration community as I take this step to become an independent arbitrator full-time.
1: Dana, we wish you all the best with this new venture. So, you've had a very successful career in international arbitration so far. Can you tell us how you got into the field?
4: I didn't go to law school actually planning to specialize in international arbitration. I got into the field sort of randomly. As a junior associate, I was assigned some research projects for an international arbitration matter. And that led to me learning a great deal about arbitration procedure and doing extensive research on cases under the New York Convention and the UNCITRAL model law on arbitration, none of which I'd ever heard of before, and other legal authorities that were equally unfamiliar to me. And at the time, you know, these research assignments were challenging and, you know, I wondered, (laughs) what is this field? And I wouldn't have actually been able to perform those research assignments if I didn't have some proficiency in French, because at the time, many of the legal authorities were printed in French. Anyways, I spent a lot of time with what they called at the time, affectionately, the orange books, which were these big compendia that contained excerpts of awards and other compilations of sanitized procedural decisions. And after performing all of those different research assignments on this one case, I became sort of a guru of how to do this awkward research and was a a go-to in the department for research for arbitration cases going forward. But the fortunate silver lining after I figured out how to do this research was that I realized I loved the field of international arbitration. And um, from then on, I was fortunate to work on many other arbitration matters and never looked back and have been very happy to specialize in international arbitration.
1: Thanks for enlightening us about the Orange Books. Dana, in just a few words, could you tell us what is one of the most significant changes you have seen in international arbitration since you started practicing? And if you could tell your younger self something, what would it be?
4: One of the most significant changes that I have seen in the international arbitration field is the expansion to include more diverse participants. And as I've mentioned earlier, that's an area that's really important to me given my work for Arbitral Women and other organizations. And I'm really excited that the arbitration community has finally started to achieve important strides towards gender parity and overall increased diversity. That said, there's obviously more work to be done and I enjoy working with so many in the field who are committed to trying to move the needle further in this area. In terms of what I would say to my younger self, starting out in law, I would say be open to new opportunities and try to develop a broad professional network. You may not know starting out as a lawyer what you ultimately will want to specialize in. I didn't. I actually thought I wanted to specialize in something totally different. So it's useful to gain broad exposure to different aspects of the practice of law through your network and different roles in practice. As you develop your understanding of what you want to specialize in, seek out mentors and peer allies in that field. Get involved in organizations active in that area. If you are on a committee, do something meaningful to contribute to that committee. Don't simply attend meetings. If you are proactive, your work will be appreciated and you will be recognized for it. It may be an important door opener to the next steps in your career.
1: Thank you, Dana, for these words of wisdom. It was a pleasure to have you with us today.
0: Deborah Enix-Ross joins us now. She is senior advisor to the International Dispute Resolution Group and a member of the firm's Diversity and Inclusion Advisory Council. Most recently, Deborah was named president-elect of the American Bar Association for 2021-2022. Deborah,
1: welcome. We are delighted to have you. Deborah, welcome. You've had a very successful career in international arbitration. And the first question we would like to ask you is, how did you get into the field?
5: Well, first, let me just thank you, Reka and Olivier, for this kind invitation. It, it's really wonderful to be with you. So, I would say my entry into international arbitration is one that was circular and not linear. I started as a legal services lawyer, and there I was involved in litigation arbitration and mediation. And from there, I went to the National Advertising Division of the Better Business Bureau, and finally to the U.S. Council for International Business, which is the American arm of the ICC. Now, each one of those jobs built on each other, So, when I started out as a litigator in in legal services, one of the tools we used was arbitration and mediation, and that helped me with my um, Better Business Bureau job, which was to do advertising, the arbitration and mediation of advertising disputes, which led to the U.S. Council, which led to some of you know that I was with WIPO, the World Intellectual Property Organization uh, in Geneva, doing arbitration of intellectual property disputes. So you can see the buildup leading to WIPO. And then from WIPO, I returned to the U.S. and have been with Voice and Plimpton as the senior advisor in international dispute resolution. So I would say that each bit of experience built on the other,
0: uh, and that's my circular route to international arbitration. What changes do you foresee in international arbitration in the next decade? Deborah? what's the next big thing, if you can suggest it.
5: So I will answer that question by going backwards for a bit. I remember, uh, as I mentioned, I was with WIPO. And about 1999, I gave a lecture uh, as part of the Chartered Institute of Arbitrators on online dispute resolution, which did not exist at the time. And almost everyone in the audience said it will never happen that there were too many problems, uh, mostly security and who was going to trust sending documents over the internet, and that it was just that no one foresee that being a really big part of international arbitration. And fast forward more than 20 years, and we are not only using the internet, but we're doing hearings by Zoom. So I would say that The next big thing, I am not at all a predictor of the next big thing, but I will say that it's going to be not only how we practice, as in remote hearings and things of that nature, but it'll also be the types of disputes that are the subject of international arbitration, from whether it's business and human rights or climate change or space law, I think that the key is we have to be flexible and we have to be open to the possibility of what we can use in international arbitration and how it is really designed, first and foremost, to help our clients resolve their disputes. And so in whatever way that may be, whatever subject matter that may be, uh, it will be incumbent upon us as the practitioners to be open and to be flexible about what is the next big thing.
1: Deborah we absolutely don't want to leave you but here is our third and final question if you could tell your younger lawyer self something what would it be
5: Well I, it's been it's so quick that we've had this conversation it feels great and i will say i hope we'll do it again it's not so much what i would tell my younger lawyer self it's what i would tell younger lawyers now and that is to be flexible and to be open I think that one of the benefits, if there, if it could be put that way, of the pandemic is that it has taught us that we need to be creative in thinking about how we practice and also looking for opportunities. And so I would say, I'm going to sum it up in what I would call five tips. And the first is, of course, you must be a good lawyer. And that means substantively, you you must be... Uh, well-versed in areas of the law. Second is I think you need to get experience in novel and unconventional ways. And, uh, And again, I think the pandemic has helped us to see that even more so. But for me, that might be whether if you want to be an arbitrator Is it, you start out as a court appointed neutral, maybe it's in small claims, maybe it's in an industry program. And by the way, if there isn't a program, an arbitration in a particular industry, then you be the one that starts that program. The third is you need to be known, even though international arbitration, it's a big world out there, the community is small. And people need to know you and they need to know that you are a good lawyer and that you have good substantive skills. Fourth, you may need to start small or you may need to start in a in a domestic arbitration, but that's okay. Not everyone starts out their career with the biggest case of their life. And then fifth, be patient and be persistent. And I think a lot of times we are so determined and so Accustomed to getting things right away that we forget that there is some value in being patient and persistent. And even though I said that were five tips, I'm going to add a bonus. And the sixth one is have fun. Why are you doing this if you're not enjoying what you're doing and having a little fun along the way? So that's what I would tell not only my younger self, but younger practitioners.
0: It was a pleasure, Deborah, And the first time, Olivia and I have sat down together to interview a guest.
1: Look forward to speaking to you soon. Luis Kimmelmann or Beno, as you are more familiar known in the international arbitration community, it is a pleasure to welcome you today. You don't need much of an introduction, so I will just say that you have over 40 years of experience in resolving international commercial construction and investor state disputes. You led international arbitration at O'Melveny & Myers, Allen & Avery, and more recently at Sidley Austin in New York, where you were the co-leader of Sidley's global international arbitration practice. Recently, you were appointed as chair of the New York International Arbitration Center, and now you have launched your own practice as an independent arbitrator. So, Beno, why this move? Can you tell us a little bit more about your plans and how it's going
6: so far? Olivia, it's a pleasure to be here, and I'm happy to try to answer your questions. Uh, First, for for many, many years, I've served as an arbitrator, and my ability to do so has really been limited by the conflicts that my firm had, which really prevented me from acting as an arbitrator in many cases. So the, the time seems right to end the conflicts and to be independent and to try to act as an arbitrator as much as I can, in addition to teaching, which I've been doing for many years, and also, as you mentioned, being chair of the uh, of NIAC, which is very important to me, and I think important to the, to the New York arbitration community. Beno, you've had a very successful
1: career in international arbitration. Can you tell us how you got into the field?
6: Like with so many other things, Olivier, it's really being at the right place at the right time. I came to New York to do international work like so many people do. I really had no idea what that meant. I had no idea whether I'd become involved in international disputes or in international transactions. Um, And I guess my good fortune was my first job in New York gave me the exposure to both transactions and disputes. And it took very little time for me to conclude that I was a dispute person and not a deal person. And so I focused really on litigation And specifically, I was really attracted to international litigation, meaning representing foreign clients who were sued in U.S. court proceedings and getting involved in issues like long-arm jurisdiction and sovereign immunity and discovery outside the United States and the extraterritorial application of U.S. law. And I found those areas really fascinating. And I was really doing this at the right time because at the time I was working on international cases, arbitration and specifically international arbitration became much more common and much more popular. And so I originally had an opportunity to work for a U.S. construction company that had arbitration clauses in all its contracts. And that gave me my first exposure to conducting an arbitration. And from those cases, slowly but surely, I ended up representing foreign parties who were involved in international disputes based on cross-border transactions. And that got me involved in the world of international arbitration. And soon thereafter, I had the opportunity to be appointed as an arbitrator in some domestic arbitrations. And soon after that, I found an opportunity to teach international arbitration at Brooklyn Law School. And one of these opportunities sort of sort of turned into the next opportunity, as is often the case. And it really got me involved in an area that I found fascinating and that I've really enjoyed working in for 40 years. Thank you, Benno. Being at the right place at the right time,
1: the key to your success in international arbitration, together with a lot of hard work, I'm sure. There are many young lawyers who are trying to break into international
6: arbitration. Do you have any tips you could share with them today? Olivier, I'm asked that question quite frequently by JD law students here in the U.S., as well as by LLM students who are studying here in the United States. And I've thought a lot about it. And the points that I try to make are the following. And many people have different views on what the right preparation really is to to get involved in in this field, and and there's no one route that's really good for everyone. But for me, I've always felt that it's very important that a young lawyer has mastery of a domestic legal system, understands how the legal system works, and particularly understands how disputes are handled within that legal system, because I think that becomes the foundation for doing international arbitration work. In addition to that, I think it's very important to be interested in and to develop adversarial skills. And that means both written skills as well as oral skills. And I can't emphasize enough how important the written skills are. The oral skills may be more glamorous and they may be more fun, but for arbitrators and for successfully handling a case, written skills really are essential. And they're also essential if you become an arbitrator because that's really, The work product of an arbitrator is really uh, the work, you know, the award. Thirdly, I emphasize to young lawyers that international arbitration is really a team sport. You need a team to be successful, you need a team to adequately represent a client. And the team members all come with different backgrounds, different skill sets, sometimes different languages, and sometimes training in different legal systems. And all of those skills are really essential to build an effective team. And one has to know how to be a team player, which means working cooperatively and constructively with others. And and I think that's really important. I often urge people that one of the tests as to whether one's really suited for this is how interested are you in other cultures, in other legal systems? Do you find it fascinating? Are you intrigued by languages and by how, the same concept can be expressed differently in different parts of the world. If you don't have that interest, if that doesn't attract you, I just don't think one's going to enjoy the international arbitration practice as much as one should. And lastly, I urge young lawyers to try to distinguish themselves, to stand out from the group of people who are very interested in this by doing, by getting involved, by uh, finding opportunities to write and publish on an international arbitration topic, to get involved in committees or activities that relate to this practice. And in New York and around the world, there are so many organizations and so many opportunities to get involved that by doing that, you meet people and you find contacts who may help you in your career, and you learn a lot, and you become a part of the international arbitration community. And I think all of these components are really essential to finding a way and and sort of making a path in the world of international arbitration.
0: Thanks so much, Benno. To our audience, we hope you found this third episode of Arbitration Insider interesting and fun. Please consult the materials made available on the podcast page, share this podcast, send us your comments, and most importantly, tune in for the next episode. Thanks so much, everyone. Have a great day.